Muslims, Christians, and, and the, the zombie. zombie apocalypse. Muslims, Christians, and the zombie apocalypse. And the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> this is Howard. And this is Trevor. And we've got our interviews with former Congressman Mark Siljander. This is our final uh, installment. But before we start, we want to play a clip from last week. Yeah, got to give you a heads up, at least know where we've been so that you can see where we're going. If you do anything that impacts policy or the regime itself, they will crush you like a cockroach if it goes against their interests. The reason I went to prison is very simple. I was interfering in three of the seven countries that Bush wanted regime change. I worked with Libya for years, you know, with Gaddafi's regime. He denounced weapons of mass destruction. He's selling us his oil, which he didn't before. U.S. is building huge hotels. So, so that looked good. You think that they would right. give you a hug for it? No, they said you're interfering. <laughs> like deploying peacekeepers and war-ravaged, genocidal, raped, massive rapes in Darfur. Right. You think they'd want to give you an award, but no, they threaten indictments from going working with the regime. is, I mean, the entire last episode is about Darfur and the Prince of Saudi Arabia. and he's, peace. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's doing some amazing things. And as you just heard in that uh, clip from last week, he's working with Gaddafi. Mm-hmm. He's working with the president of Sudan. He's working with Saddam Hussein. Which we get into a little bit more in this week. A little preview. Right. And essentially he feels like because of his work in Muslim context that he is targeted I was targeted for two reasons in brief. One, the work, mainly the work overseas that went contrary to the special and self-interest of certain people in the government and in the military-industrial complex. There's no money in peace, but as we found out by Brown University, there are trillions in war. Secondly, Islam's a new enemy to replace the Soviet empire. And when you say, oh, well, they can actually be friends and we can find common ground and undermine radicalism while empowering a new awakening, spiritual awakening amongst more millions of Muslims than the polls can count, that's a threat. So Mark Siljander thinks he's targeted. Um, Explain to me why he's a threat. Go into that a little bit more in detail. Well, he did quote a study that came out from Brown University, and it was essentially saying that the global war on terrorism has cost upwards of $4 uh, trillion. Wow. And so the threat is if he's making peace in these areas uh, that are really generating a lot of income for, as he said, certain entities within the government, then he becomes a threat. And if they want regime change and they want the regime to look bad and he's going over and deploying peacekeepers and everybody's looking good and there's peace in the area, you're not going to have regime change. So essentially Mm. he thinks he got uh, pushed out, targeted um, for being a peacemaker. And messing with the wedge gets Mark into a lot of trouble. I was threatened with treasonous activities back in 2002 if I didn't stop my quote-unquote crusade against the Iraq war. So I turned my attentions to Sudan, finding out that they hated the regime in Sudan. They hated Saddam, of course, we know that. They hated Gaddafi. And here I was working in three countries that the Bush regime, according to General Wesley Clark, wanted to change the regime. 
and our efforts were quite successful. So who is General Wesley Clark? Uh, he's no, you know, small-time guy. He's a four-star general. Wow. Graduated first in his class from the United States Military Academy at West Point. He uh, was a Rhodes Scholar, went over to uh, Oxford, studied there, 34 years of service in the United States Army, and eventually uh, he runs for the Democratic ticket for uh, president. It's interesting to hear what he has to say about the regime change after 9-11. About 10 days after 9-11, I went through the Pentagon and I saw Secretary Rumsfeld and, and Deputy Secretary Wolfowitz. I went downstairs just to say hello to some of the people on the joint staff who had used, used to work for me. And one of the generals called me in. He said, sir, you got to come in. you got to come in and talk to me a second. I said, well, you're too busy. He said, no, no. He says, we've made the decision we're going to war with Iraq. This was on or about the 20th of September. I said, we're going to war with Iraq. Why? He said, I don't know. <laughs> he said, I guess they don't know what else to do. So uh, I said, well, did they find some information collect connecting Saddam to al-Qaeda? He said, no, no. He says, there's nothing new that way. They just made the decision to go to war with Iraq. He said, I guess it's like we don't know what to do about terrorists, but... We've got a good military, and we can take down governments. And um, he said, I guess if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem has to look like a nail. So I came back to see him a few weeks later, and by that time we were bombing in Afghanistan. I said, are we still going to war with Iraq? And he said, oh, it's worse than that. He said, he reached over on his desk, he picked up a piece of paper, and he said, I just, he said, I just got this down from upstairs, meaning the Secretary of Defense's office today, and he said, this is a memo that describes how we're going to take out seven countries in five years, starting with Iraq and then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off Iran. So that's a clip from a talk that General Wesley Clark was giving on democracy now. I was really surprised by his candor. I know, right? I mean, he just comes out and says, why? <laughs> yeah, it was kind of uh, funny. But then when you think about war, it's like not funny at all. Yeah, because you're talking about people's lives and just whims. And I don't know, it just felt really uncomfortable to me. Yeah, but it does give credit to what Siljander is saying, because this is what I think for me was just so mind blowing is that Siljander is having these secret meetings with Saddam, right? He's told to back down. And he's like, fine, I'll back down. He turns his attention to Sudan. Sudan. Yeah. And then while he's in the Sudan, it's like, wait a second. This is one of the other countries, and now, no matter how hard he tries, like he's working with areas of the world that people that are more powerful than him don't want him working in. And in his mind, this is going to be bad. And, and what gets him in trouble is that he's actually doing a good job. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's like you can't win. You just can't win. Yeah, actually, uh, Mark's success in bringing peace to these areas ends up resulting in what he says is being indicted for his making peace in Muslim countries. But they do offer him a way out. Yeah, they offer him a way out. They, in the beginning, they indict him and essentially ask him to make a deal, I guess. And in making a deal, it would be another compromise of what he believes. They end up wanting me to testify against Muslims that I was in conspiracy with them and they'd let me go. But of course, if I lied, my personal integrity is crushed. My work with Muslims is destroyed because I'm speaking untruths to save myself. And I refuse to do so. So that was the key for the Washington, D.C., Bush-era neoconservatives 
to layer the, lower the hammer on me. So they held a news conference saying I was indicted along with these Muslims for conspiracy money laundering of terrorist funds. Well, when they found out there was no charges, even against the Muslims, for any terrorism charges, they had to come back and correct the record, but who listened to that? So they end up indicting me into these ridiculous charges, all of which were dropped, by the way, immediately, because they're absurd. Money laundering, a conspiracy with Muslim charity whom I didn't know. I mean, it was absurd. But what stuck was lying to the FBI. It's called obstruction of justice, but it's a fancy felony then. About what? Really, let's bring all these horrible charges down to what it, the nub. Did the donation given by this Muslim charity, when they were still in good standing with the IRS and everyone else, did I use the money as a quid pro quo to lobby? Or was the money used for our charitable purposes? That was the nub of the issue. All right, so what's the big deal about lobbying? That's just what I don't understand. Okay, so the group that he received this money from is a group that was eventually put on uh, the terrorist watch list as a charity that was uh, using funding uh-huh. to engage in terrorism. And so if they lo- if Siljander lobbies for them, how does that in any way cause problems for him? Well, he says he wasn't lobbying for them. Okay. So I just, to clear that up, he, he didn't lobby for them in his, uh, his own words. What he says is that he received money from them in order to do charity work, and he says that he did that charity work. Now, what he is accused of is that he was lobbying on behalf of this terrorist organization, and the accusation is that he was trying to get them off of the terrorist watch list by using his lobby in, in Congress. Oh, okay. And he that wasn't makes sense. registered as a lobbyist, and so there's there's these accusations that he was doing that. But then he's saying that nothing really sticks except for um, the FBI uh, lying to the FBI, right? Because in his mind, he's thinking, "I'm going to take this thing to trial because he can show that if he wanted to lobby, he would have gotten. You know, he can lobby. He can go and, and register and, and do a lobby outright. He wouldn't have gone through this, uh, you know, backdoor process. And he felt the charges were just absolutely absurd." And so what ends up happening is right before he's ready to go to trial and defend himself, there is a Supreme Court ruling that changes everything. They used the Supreme Court ruling that occurred a week before my trial, that giving food, clothing, are you with me? Food and clothing, medical supplies to anyone on the terrorist list is material support of terrorism. Because they'd have to buy it otherwise. If you're giving them clothing, they don't have to buy clothes. Giving them food, you don't have to buy food. And Justice Roberts, guess what he added? Because I wasn't giving clues, clothes or food or medical supplies to Sudan or Libya or any of these countries that are on the terrorist list. He added verbal advice. Whoops. Well, he was... Yeah, oops I mean, is right. He, yeah, he he was giving advice. Of course he but, was giving advice. He the, was making peace. Yeah, but not in the same way, you know, they would accuse him of, like, uh, you know, causing more war, causing more problems. Doesn't he was trying matter. to fix it. Yeah. It doesn't matter. They are on wow. the terrorist watch list. You cannot be involved. And it seems a little bit suspicious. What, was it a week before uh, the trial? he went to trial? Well, he says that he doesn't think there's, uh, it's totally coincidental, the timing. 
mm. in, in Mark's opinion. Okay. Somebody else might be like, this seems a bit odd. <laughs> um, you know, who knows? Yeah. All we know for certain is that there is a ruling that, that changes everything, and he can no longer go to trial. And so, under the advice of his family and his wife, I mean, imagine walking through this for like four years of your yeah. name being smeared in the press and people accusing you of being a terrorist and this and that, and you're like friends with public enemy number one. He yeah. just gives up. Even if you go to court and win on the line to the FBI, <clears throat> you will be re-indicted for going to Sudan. And what are you going to say? I said, but wait a minute. It was to stop a genocide and help a million, two million people displaced to go home and stop rapes. No, it doesn't matter the reason. Did you give verbal advice or not? Eventually, Mark pleads guilty and is sentenced to a year and a day in prison. It's called a low-security prison in Petersburg, Virginia. It was, you know, barbed wire movements each hour, 67 naked nude searches, humiliating searches. And when I'd have to squat to make sure I wasn't hiding anything in certain orifices, they would say, come on, congressman, squat again, cough again. I mean, just to be insulting. And if I didn't admit I was a former congressman, which would be a jewel in the crown to cut up or kill a congressman, I'd have to just let them assume I'm a pedophile. What's a white man, middle-aged man without tattoos and their teeth doing in a pedophile prison who claims to only have a four- to six-month sentence to serve? And I'm certain I'd be cut up or beaten up repeatedly. Okay, it's a little bit shocking that they put a congressman in with general population. Yeah, so explain that, because I'm not really, you know... I don't know. I was shocked myself. I, I mean, in the interview, I was like, wait a second. What, what is... Where do they usually put congressmen? I don't know. Uh-huh. I just assumed they didn't go to general population. I thought they probably had, like, a resort-style <laughs> uh, prison camp somewhere where, you know... So this is really a thing. There's, like, white-collar... Um, prisons and then there's blue collar prisons is that what you're saying well there are minimum security prisons there are maximum security well prisons. this one's a minimum security prison i don't think it was minimum i think he said it was low i think that's a, probably uh, a different category but he's hmm. you know as he describes it i'm still shocked yeah and it was funny that he said uh you know a middle-aged white guy with his teeth so honestly when i first heard him say that i thought why would people just assume because you have all your teeth you don't have tattoos that you must be a pedophile But there was something he didn't mention that gives clarity to his statement. This prison actually is part of a program called the Sex Offender Management Program. The prison that Mark was in, uh, upwards of 40% of the people in there are sex offenders. And so when he says he was part of a pedophile prison, and if if I'm a white middle-aged man with four to six months and I don't have tattoos in my teeth, I must be a sex offender, his assumption is probably right. The thing that sticks out to me, that's kind of sad, really, is that he has to kind of decide whether or not being known as a congressman is better than being known as a pedophile. Yeah, the way he describes it is, I could be like a jewel in someone's crown as a congressman. I mean, that that is insane. And in the end, he decides to maintain his integrity. Then I said, well, the truth will keep you free, according to the scriptures. That is in the scripture. I said, I'm a former congressman, and I used to work with... I'm working with Muslims, and I'm, I'm really a political prisoner. What it amounts to, I'm here for lying the FBI. And they said, you could not be. You wouldn't be here in this prison lying the FBI. You'd be in the camp, if anything. I said, they won't put me in the camp. They want to make a point to other people of my ilk who would dare work with Muslims. This is what's going to happen to you. 
So without really having Jesus uh, overwhelming me at the time, I could have been very bitter and angry. All right, so the story at this point takes on kind of like a Joseph feel to it, right? What uh, man intended for bad, God is going to use for good. So Siljander's in general population. He's terrified, but he doesn't have a bad attitude. He's actually thankful for the situation he's in, and he starts preaching the gospel to people. And things in prison start to change. Starting with the skinheads. Top two skinheads, Nazis with bare he- heads and swastikas, met Jesus in a powerful way. So we started holding prayer meetings. And then we started praying with Nazis, former Nazis, and Latino gang lords. And then the black guys, and the gang bangers, and the rednecks with the meth dealers in the mountains, and the Buddhist gangs. Before you know it, the whole prison's like in an uproar. And I was called in repeatedly by the captain to tell me that I had to stop my purveying these dangerous ideas in the prison. What's funny? It just seems like no matter where this guy goes, he he keeps getting in trouble. And it's because he's trying to be obedient in his faith. It reminds me of Acts 24, where Paul's accused as somebody that, like, stirs up riots. Oh, yeah. This warden is angry because he's having Bible studies with skinheads. And stirring up uh, the skinheads and the Latinos to, you know, essentially pray and worship and get excited about Jesus. This is problematic for people, apparently. Yeah, and they they go to great lengths to keep them from doing it. They basically banned me from working anywhere because they felt anywhere I worked that I could teach or share ideas would be dangerous. Because they don't like inmates praying together. They want to keep them in in division. There's control. But you don't have to worry about... They're not going to form a gang and escape. This is the Jesus gang. All right, so this show wouldn't be possible without sponsors. And at this point in the show is where, if you want to partner with us, we would put your ad. So if you want to be a part of the show, you, you want like, to partner with us. You like what we're doing. You want to be on our team, what have you. Bring this show to the world. Then email us and let us know. All right, so Howard, do you see the common theme here of what he was trying to do in the Muslim world and now what he's trying to do in prison? Yeah, he's constantly building bridges wherever he's at. And building bridges and promoting peace scares people, in his mind, because what if these gang members start meeting together for prayer? (laughs) What could happen? And I love that he says it's the Jesus gang. Oh, that was awesome. It's the Jesus gang. These guys aren't going to run away. They're not going to escape. Yeah, they're just going to pray for you guys. They're here to love one another. (laughs) And so there is a hint of like idealism from Mark, but I don't know that it's really idealistic. It might just be that we're supposed to believe that God could actually build bridges of peace and unity with some of the most divided people on the earth. And I think his work is showing it in the prison and in the Middle East and, you know, areas of conflict in the world, wherever he goes, when he applies the principles that he's learned from following Christ, it It, makes changes. But in the same way that he was in his mind targeted by his own government, he feels as though now he's being targeted by the prison system. And they go a step further. 
and they try to nail him on anything they can. But they tried. They they threatened me with criminal activity three or four times, new charges, because my wife kissed me, or my son put the phone on speakerphone so my daughter could hear a phone call saying it was an illegal call. They were all dropped, but it was harassment. And the more they harassed, the more the inmates respected me, and the more open doors. So just the opposite happened. Every So for over months... 20 copies of A Deadly Misunderstanding were floating all over the campus. The guards were reading it. The inmates were reading it. And they said, whatever you do, don't talk to the Muslims. Okay, you talk to the skinheads, the Latinos, the Asians, and the, the Africans, and the, and the meth white guys. But please don't talk to the Muslims. They will cut you up for sure. All right, this is unbelievable. He's being gagged again. Don't talk to Muslims. Stop talking to Saddam Hussein. Stop working in the Sudan. Do not meet with Gaddafi. And now it's like, do not talk to the imam in prison. And I just feel like Mark has this spirit about him that it's like, who is it better for me to obey, God or man? Like, that's what it sounds like, right? And, and, and the idea behind it is the same. Like, they will kill you. They will cut you up, you know, and it's both in both scenarios. Uh, but that's not what happens. Well, the first person I went to then is the head imam the prison. I mean, the inmate, not the chaplain. And we had such a exciting conversation. We started studying the Quran together. I had an audio, a book signing session in his cell where he had two copies of my book and his sons were said were straying from the faith. And he thought if they would read a deadly misunderstanding, maybe they'll come back to God. So I'm sitting there autographing <laughs> my book in the cell of the head imam with all these Muslims around praying Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim in the name of God who's compassionate, merciful. So it was a riotous time in the context of the Holy Spirit moving. I was never threatened. Everyone, I had had my back from the Buddhists to the gangbangers. And there was prayer and deliverances and salvations and and life changes. And But let me tell you something. I was probably the most changed myself. I mean, I went in there scared to death. Went from palaces to prisons. All right, it seems like Mark is actually having, ended up having a really good time. Yeah, and the way that he describes his prison sentence is just not the way you would anticipate somebody viewing it. It reminds me of Paul, actually, the Apostle Paul, because, you know, the circumstances, he said it was really hot, there's cockroaches, it was really tough, a tough situation. Obviously, he didn't want to be there. And then... He ends up praising the Lord. Yeah, and it ends up being like, well, sounds like revival's breaking out. Yeah, and that's really cool. So before we ended the interview, Howard had this one question that he wanted to ask Mark Siljander. I just wanted to know what advice he would give to other Christian politicians. And I'd tell him the same thing I told the form, one of the former Republican leaders of the Congress. I said, we need to be completed or shalom. The real shalom or salam in Arabic, the real completion of peace will come as we love God and we love the Democrats, if we're Republican, or if we're Democrat, the Republicans. And that's completely contrary to common sense, logic, and political instincts. I know that. I've been there 30 years in D.C., very aware of it. But since everything else has failed, I'm just looking for one or two politicians that would consider experimenting, perhaps at their political peril, this construct that Jesus taught about. 
Before we left, we asked Mark one last question. We wanted to know how he saw God using him in the future and what exactly it was that he was attempting to do now. I'm committed to continue the work and bridging between Muslims, Christians, and Jews and taking the model of peacemaking that brings Christian, Muslims, and Jews together through the powerful ideas of Jesus and apply those to areas of crisis and conflict. All right, Howard, what, what were your thoughts about our time with uh, former Congressman Mark Siljander? I can't help but feel this trend. Um, you know, in this studio, we've interviewed a lot of missionaries that have gone through a lot in their life, but they, like Mark Siljander, um, attribute it to God. Um, yeah, there was the bad, but then there's also this eternal good uh, that results. And I kind of have that feeling with Mark is that, like, as I hear his story, I'm thinking inside, like, how, how much I'm grieving for the guy. Because it's like he can't catch a break. And everything that he's trying to do is, is for the Lord. And according to man, he says it himself in one part of the interview that he's a failure. Yeah, I think for me, Howard, prior to meeting him, I had some presuppositions that I think... He kind of blew out of the water. All I had known about Mark was from what he had written in his own book and from what I had seen in the media. And to the media's, you know, defense, Mark actually was thankful for some of the things the media said. And he didn't, he wasn't angry at the media. But the media representations of him over the last 10 years have been pretty wicked. And so when I met him, I just thought, this isn't the guy I anticipated meeting. He just had a real sweet spirit about him. Yeah, he wasn't bitter. Like, he really wasn't bitter. You know, like, if I <laughs> if I was in that situation, you know, any kind of crisis I go through, I'm just, you know, all of a sudden it throws me into a tizzy. I'm, I'm sure, like, you know, he's been there, but I'm just saying, like, I didn't pick that up from him. No, I didn't pick up any bitterness. I actually picked up uh, a real sense of hope. Gratitude. And I think that's something that needs to be told in this story. That's not a story the media is normally going to tell about Mark Siljander. It doesn't mean that Howard and I agree with everything that he said. It doesn't mean that Howard and I believe everything that he said. But we, we at least want to be able to say that we told his story accurately. And so, Mark, if you're listening, we hope that we told your story accurately and that you would approve. <laughs>